0: The topic for my talk today is Christendom, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and I've been given the excessive amount of time of an hour and 15 minutes to cover it. So we'll see how things go. I was actually ready to begin at the scheduled time, but I just felt that you probably needed a bit of a break. So I had mercy on you to begin with. I hope that I can have mercy, that you will still think I had mercy on you at the end. What is Christendom? The first word of my topic has to do with a, um, a spiritual thing, uh, yet a spiritual thing which is incarnate in a way. It is incar- incarnated in societies. It is a matter of Catholic societies that have grown throughout the years through the labor of apostles and missionaries, consecrated virgins, and martyrs who have given their lives to form what we refer to as Christendom. When we talk about Christendom, we're talking about a complexus of Catholic societies which are dedicated to the teachings of the gospel. That means that they propose to base all of their laws and the enforcement of those laws on the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospels. Now, of course, human beings cannot live up perfectly to the ideals of the gospel. But the fact is that we realize it is an ideal and we strive to live up to it more and more perfectly. This is the principle upon which all Catholic societies are based and on which Christendom is based. They are united by a common faith, a common hope, and a common charity, even though knowing from the outset that they're going to fall far short, inevitably. Nonetheless, this is their ideal. This is the fundamental unifying principle of Christendom. This is a perfect opportunity to speak on the subject because, as has already been remarked, no doubt, by other speakers, this October 13th is the anniversary of the great miracle of the sun which consummated Our Lady's apparitions to the children at Fatima in Portugal apparitions which extended from May through October in 1917. This is the 84th anniversary of the Great Miracle. And so it makes sense that we begin with that note and end by talking about our Blessed Mother. Now, our Catholic people need to see the big picture. When we talk about Christendom yesterday, today, and tomorrow, it's a very broad topic and we really do need to see the big picture. And when we as Catholics talk about the big picture, we're talking about seeing things as God sees things, seeing things the way the saints in heaven now see things. That's the big picture. Isaac Newton once said that if he were able to accomplish so much, if he was able to accomplish so much as he was in the field of science and mathematics, it was because he was able to stand upon the shoulders of giants well, we Catholics also stand upon the shoulders of giants, and those giants are the saints. And that's why we can see so far. Isaac Newton could see very far in terms of the principles governing the the movement of physical <coughs> objects in the world. But we, as Catholics, can see much farther than that, because of the giants, of the saints, upon whose shoulders we stand we can see actually out of this world and right into eternity. That's the big picture. And that's the only vantage point from which to really understand what is happening in the world. It's a picture that transcends time and place, just as the Church herself transcends time, limitations of mere time and place. If we look at Christendom in the past, one thing that stands out is the fact that all of those who have followed our Lord Jesus Christ in his teachings, all of those who have embraced the Catholic faith and strived to live it, have been subjected to hardship and trials. That's the thing that stands out when one studies the history of the Church, the trials that the Catholic people have been through, which the Church herself has been through. In fact, we find that the lives of the Catholic people from the very beginning were beset continually by persecutions and by sufferings, both uh, probably because of what was going on within the Church and also what was going on outside of the Church. Those persecutions began with the slander and the perjury directed against our Lord Himself. and were consummated by his suffering and death on the cross. But we also find that just as the church and her people, her children, have always suffered hardship and persecution, so we find that they also have enjoyed time after time a foretaste of the resurrection of our Lord. Time after time, God seemed to rescue the church from the edge of the precipice. Perhaps at times when no one could have envisioned how the church could escape this trap or that snare, God always made it look easy. And we find this over and over again, that throughout all of these hardships, there was always a little glimmer of the resurrection, God showing the power by which he can save those who love him. We see right from the beginning the followers of our Lord Jesus Christ persecuted by the Jews. Most of those uh, in the initial days were were Jews, or converted to following our Lord, and they did suffer persecution. And then, of course, that persecution spread throughout the Roman Empire. You see, the Catholic faith was persecuted by the Empire because the Catholic religion was illegal. To believe in Jesus Christ was against the law. It was against the law because for a religion to be legalized in the empire, it had to be voted on by the Roman Senate. The Roman Senate had to confer the note of legality on any religion. And when the Roman armies uh, came back victorious from their campaigns, they would bring back also... uh, knowledge of and perhaps even some symbols of the gods of the people whom they conquered, and they would be enshrined in the Pantheon, a place for all the gods, Pantheon, and the Roman Senate would then vote to approve this religion as legal in the Empire. But Christianity was not voted on as legal by the Roman Senate, and so for all those years, even during times of relative peace, During the 250 years, from the reign of Nero to the reign of Constantine, during those times of relative peace, during this two-and-a-half-century period of persecution, the Church and her faith were still illegal, and the Catholic people always had to reckon with the fact that they were engaging in an illegal activity when they offered Mass and administered the sacraments and received the sacraments. And at any moment, the wrath of the empire could descend upon them, often wrath that was precipitated by the jealousy of neighbors who were envious of the prosperity of the Christian people around them. The prosperity which arose from their work ethic and their moral, the moral principles that they Now, even while the church was still subject to persecution in the Roman Empire, there were also divisions among priests and bishops and lay people within the church. Heresies were wracking the church, even in the times of the apostles. Even the apostles had to deal with this. I mean, they who knew our Lord personally and who could speak from personal experience about our Lord's teaching and, and what he meant by what he taught, had to deal with people who would get up and contradict them and teach a different faith and attribute it to our Lord. The apostles had to deal with the likes of Cerinthus and Simon Magus, Simon the magician. We read about him in the Acts of the Apostles. And they also had to deal with the Judaizers, those who were converts from Judaism, but not converted quite all the way. And so they were so half-Jewish and half-Christian. They believed that to become a Christian you had to become a Jew first. And this required converts from the Gentiles, from the pagans, to first become Jews and followers of Moses before they could be admitted to follow Christ and become Christians. These Judaizers had a very profound effect for quite a long time. Then you have the the Gnostic monster. Gnosticism was a belief that came out of the East that all mankind is simply pieces of God, God who was broken, shattered like a, let's say, like a piece of glass by an evil God who created the world as a prisoner. And we are pieces of God imprisoned in the world, but one day, of course, we'll discover that we are truly God. We'll discover our own divinity. In fact, in our own day, the the uh, New Age movement is predicting the great world teacher to come any minute now and teach us our own divinity. And this is simply a resurgence of the Gnostic error that has been fueling human pride and fueled by human pride from the very beginning when Lucifer said to Eve, no, not so, but God knows if you disobey him and eat this fruit that you will be as gods yourselves, knowing good and evil for yourselves. It's the same story. It's just New Age movement is just modern day Gnosticism is all it is. It is a monster. It's like a hydra. It has not only so many heads, it also has tentacles that reach virtually everywhere human pride goes. The Catholic faithful had to deal with this. They had to deal with the Marcionites. They had to face the Montanists. They had to deal with the Arian heresy, perhaps the most deadly of all the heresies. They had to deal with the Apollinarians, with the Eutychians, with the Sibelians, with the Modalists, with the Paterpasianists, with the Nestorians, with the Monothelites, with the Monophysites, and on and on and on. All these different heresies were arising to attack the Church and her faith in the early centuries. Can you imagine being a Catholic at a time like that? We traditional Catholics can hold firmly to the faith as we know it because we can know it. Thank goodness we didn't have to go through this trial by fire of dealing with all these different heresies. Whatever the human imagination could invent became a heresy. But God has provided a sure knowledge of the faith for us because of the church's tradition And because the church faced these heretics and answered them, we have those answers. And you realize that while all of this was going on, Catholics were living in a society that was falling apart, was disintegrating under its own weight, because as the church was spreading, unfortunately, the huge pagan superstructure was crumbling, and the empire could not even defend itself sometimes didn't even have the will to defend itself. And the soldiers who were the bravest and the best in their legions were Christians very often, and they were the ones who were put to death. They were the ones who were murdered by the very empire they were sworn to defend as soldiers because it was thought that Christians in the ranks of the army would compromise the blessings of the gods and would risk defeat in battle. And so the most loyal of the soldiers, the Christians, were martyred, And no wonder the pagan superstructure of the empire began to collapse. People were so saturated with luxury and laziness, they were paying mercenaries from the very barbarian peoples they were fighting against. They were paying the mercenaries to fight for them, against the barbarian tribes. Quite a number of the Roman generals were actually leaders from the barbarian peoples in the employ of Rome. Imagine being a Catholic and living a situation like that, with the heresies threatening on the one side, and the invasion of barbarian warlords all around, streaming along the coastlines and down through the very heart of what is now Germany, what is now France, and up through what is now Spain long before France and Germany and Spain were ever thought of. All of these barbarian tribes were vicious. They could be very kind to members of their own tribes every bit as much as they were cruel to those who were not members of their tribes. And so from the 400s on, for several centuries, from the north and the east, Catholics had to face this. It's a constant threat. And then came the rise of Islam from the South. From the early 600s even to this very moment Islam has threatened the Catholic people. In all those early years the Catholics of northern Africa and Spain and eastward through Arabia and into the Middle East had to deal with this threat. It was a very very difficult adversary because as we're going to see it taught that salvation came by blood not so much by the blood of any savior nor by the blood even of the individual Muslim militant, but by the blood of many innocent people who would be slain, all for the glory of Allah. You go then just a few centuries later and you see the consummation of a a struggle that had been brewing already for centuries before that. The Eastern Schism, when the churches of the East, the great patriarchates of the East, broke away from the church, they would say that the West broke away from them. But it doesn't work that way. The great patriarchates of the East and their the churches of the East broke away from the Roman Catholic Church and went their own way. They lived to regret it because... They tied the spiritual power to the politics of the nation or the principality where they were. That's why you have a Russian Orthodox church, and a Greek church, and a Ukrainian Orthodox church, and because these were all tied to the the politics of the of the era, and the locale. This came back seriously to haunt the Orthodox when the Bolsheviks took over Russia, and now the Orthodox Church, which had always been an extension of the crown, the king, the emperor, the czar, whatever they had. Now the government was controlled by Bolsheviks, and The church that they had cherished so, so diligently all those years against the church in Rome passed into the control of a communist government, but this is what they had chosen centuries before, and uh, certainly um, the vultures came home to roost there. But this was consummated finally in the year 1054. There was a a brief time when in 950 uh, there was a break, then a temporary reunion, and then finally in 1054 the Orthodox churches broke away permanently. I'm telling you this because I want you to try to think of what it would have been like being a Catholic while all of this was going on. Then you have a few centuries later the Babylonian captivity of the church, when the Pope had to flee from Rome to Avignon, France, where he was under the thumb of the French king. And finally, St. Catherine of Siena convinced him, the Pope, after generations and after multiple successors, convinced the Pope to return to Rome only to have the whole thing blow up in what is called the Great Western Schism. the cardinals, especially the French cardinals, took actions which left Catholics totally bewildered because they left them with a pope in Rome who was the true pope. So many of the cardinals broke away, elected another pope. The same cardinals, by the way, who elected the first pope elected the second in France. And then finally, a few years later, someone tried to remedy the situation by electing a third pope at Pisa. And for a brief time, there were three men claiming to be popes who actually had some plausible claim to the papacy. Of course, we know that's impossible. But the Catholics had to deal with this. Can you imagine living through something like this, living at a time like this? Well, your Catholic ancestors had to deal with these things. They were dealing with despotic emperors and kings. They lived through the lay investiture struggles when the emperors... driving uh, bishops and even popes into exile when the emperors and kings were naming bishops on the basis of the fact that they were useful politically. Ah, This went on for centuries. The Black Plague in the 1400s, one-third of the people of Europe died in that plague. That's the estimate anyway. One out of every three human beings alive in Europe died during the course of that plague in about 25 years. Can you imagine? Then came the Enlightenment, Humanism, Rationalism. Then the continued heresies of John Huss, Wycliffe, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, 1300s, 1400s, 1500s. The continued threat of Islam all during this time. With the great Battle of Lepanto, the Battle of the Gates of Vienna, Lepanto in 1570, when the Christian fleet defeated the Muslims and the Battle of Vienna in 1683 when the Muslims were defeated at the very gates of Vienna. Then you see the rise of Freemasonry. You see the French Revolution, the convulsion of France, a convulsion that spread throughout the entirety of Christendom with the rise of Napoleon when two popes were actually taken prisoner by Napoleon. Can you imagine being a Catholic living through this time? seeing this happen. Then in the 1800s, the revolutions, revolution upon revolution all throughout Europe in the 1800s. And the Pap- IX, actually, a prisoner of, the va- of, of uh, his own rep- pre- uh, papal see for a while, his papal palace, and then having to actually be smuggled out of Rome to the safety of Gaeta, to return later only to find to call the first Vatican Council and then have the troops of Garibaldi roll in and, and take over the city? Can you imagine being a Catholic at this time? Well, my dear people, you'd better begin to be able to imagine what it would be like, because I think the times ahead are going to require that we identify more with our Catholic ancestors than by this very unusual situation in which most of us Mm -hmm. receive the faith and have been living the faith over the past 50, 60, 70 years. The situation prevailing in the world over the last century or so has been very, very unusual. Our understanding of how things should be for Catholics What we consider to be normal is, in fact, very unusual. The Catholic people have seldom known peace. They've seldom known a time when they were safe. They've seldom known a time when there was as much clarity as there is today. And it's all because we are the beneficiaries of their struggles, of their hardships, of their sufferings, and often of their deaths. And I just give this as a kind of a brief overview about Christendom of the past. It is marked by sufferings. It is marked by a great deal of genuine heroism, real heroism. We know the saints of the past because they come to us from times of struggle and hardship and sacrifice. And if it seems that we have a hard time finding great saints and prophets in our own day, perhaps it is because the soil just isn't right for it. Well, I believe that the soil is going to become heavily fertilized by sacrifice and even by blood. When we come to the present day, Christendom... At this moment, what do we find? Well, we find a great deal of decay. That as the Roman Empire was decaying back when the faith was planted, so we find, or shortly after the faith was planted, so we find that uh, Christendom today has decayed a great deal, and it's decayed because the faith has decayed in the hearts and the minds of the people. And even where there is faith in our Lord, There is not a genuine hope. Hope tells you that you will be saved if you do the things that our Lord demands of you, not just that you will be saved automatically, regardless of what you do. That is not the virtue of hope. Not only is faith decayed, but true hope is decayed, and certainly true charity is decayed. But it has been said just recently, in fact, uh, and said well, a little too well, by a modern cardinal, Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor. He is the leader of the 4.1 million Catholics in England and Wales. And this, uh, I would call him a modern or novus ordo cardinal who's presiding over the, uh, the Reformed Church in England and Wales commented on the collapse of Christianity in those countries. September 6th of this year, in the Times, we read, Christianity has almost been vanquished in Britain, Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor told a gathering of priests yesterday. Christ was being replaced by music, New Age beliefs, the environmental movement, the occult, and the free market economy, the Archbishop of Westminster said. In a candid and unscripted passage of his speech, the Cardinal also spoke of the damage and shame brought to his church by the scandal of pedophile priests. The extent to which Christianity informed modern culture and intellectual life in Britain today has been hugely diminished, he's told the National Conference of Priests in Leeds. And this is a quote from this Cardinal Murphy O'Connor. It does seem in our countries in Britain today, especially in England and Wales, that Christianity, as a sort of backdrop to people's lives and moral decisions, and to the government, the social life of the country has now almost been vanquished. There is indifference to Christian values and to the church among many young people, and indeed not only the young. You see quite a demoralized society, one where the only good is what I want. The only rights are my own, and the only life with any meaning or value is the life I want for myself. Comments reported September 6th, just five days before the tragedy at the World Trade Center. I think the Cardinal has said it quite well. There is a decay going on, even to the point that he says that Christianity has been practically vanquished. That means conquered, overcome. Quite an admission for the leader of the 4.1 million modern Catholics of England and Wales. My dear people, we do have to face one thing as a threat that has come back to haunt us today. And the reason why it is haunting us is because we have weakened ourselves by a lack of faith and a lack of hope and a lack of love for God. That's the only reason why Islam could have risen again. And I wanted to mention this to you because it does form an important part, not only of today, but of at least what I expect is going to be the future. You know, Pope Pius XI instituted the feast of the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he also gave us a beautiful prayer. An act of consecration of the human race to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. You know it well. You have prayed it many times before the Blessed Sacrament. It is required to be prayed on the Feast of Christ the King, and we will pray it before our altars on the last Sunday of this month. In that act of consecration of the human race to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, Pope Pius XI has this Praise. We are praying for those qui in tenebris idolatrie aut islamismi autobersantur. That is, we are praying for those who are yet cast into the darknesses of idolatry or islamism. And the Pope introduced this into the prayer of consecration because he must have seen something coming, something very sinister. Notice he refers to the darknesses of Islamism. Well, we have seen this darkness recently, and it is very dark indeed. In order to understand the present and what I fear is going to be the future and what we're going to be up against, we need to have a little bit of an understanding about Islam. In recent sermons I talked about this, but I'd like to show it to you today, actually, so you can see some of it with your own eyes. Islam means submission. The word Islam can be related back to any of four different words in Arabic, Arabic language, but the most commonly accepted is submission because in the early part of the Quran, Muhammad, the founder of Islam, uses the word submission, how necessary it is to submit to the will of Allah. Muhammad was born about the year 570 A.D., so very early on, and uh, he lived 63 years. He was a camel driver, not a very auspicious beginning, I suppose, but the uh, Muslims probably would say, well, being a carpenter wasn't a very auspicious beginning either. But, uh, of course, we knew that our Lord's, being the foster son of St. Joseph, was a carpenter for a very important spiritual and symbolic reason. But Mohammed was a camel driver, and he was employed by a wealthy family, one of whose members, an older woman, a woman 15 years his senior, actually chose to marry him. And at that point, Mohammed, who had been a very poor man, raised by a poor uncle in an otherwise rather wealthy country, at that moment, Mohammed himself became a rich man through marriage, and he set in motion a kind of effort to enrich the poor at the expense of the the wealthy. Mohammed, we are told in many of the biographies of him, was a pagan, but it might not be that simple. It appears that he might well have been a member of a a pseudo-quasi-Christian sect called the Ebionites. The Ebionites go back to those group of Judaizers I was just telling you about, those who tried to remain Jewish even when they became Christian. And the Ebionites, by the time of Mohammed, were a half-Jewish, half-Christian group, but also they had a, a rich mixture of legends tied in, the apocryphal stories that weren't really revealed by God, but all kinds of legends about our Lord and about Moses and about Abraham and so on. And when you read the Quran, all of this is to be found there. You can, you can actually read the Quran and wonder, where did he get all of this? I know some of it came from the New Testament and some of it came from the Old Testament, but there's a, a large mixture of other things that just seem to be pure invention. Well, actually, the Quran came out of this milieu. The Ebionites, who still held to the Old Testament, hold to the New Testament, and had a lot of legends floating around too, what are called the apocryphal stories about our Lord. This is really the makeup of the Quran. I was told that Quran means simply the readings. That when Muhammad began, uh, these readings were simply supposed to be his commentaries on the Old Testament, the New Testament, and these apocryphal stories. <clears throat> but that originally, he did not necessarily, right from the, from the start, propose what he was doing as divine revelation. But of course, that's what the Quran became. And so it was a new revelation. Muhammad was a new prophet. He received his calling late in life, about the age of 40 years. And he spent the last 23 years of his life cultivating his teachings. And became known as the prophet, or the messenger, or the apostle of Allah. By the way, ebionites uh, the, the word comes from poor men, so it seemed to fit Mohammed very well. but. If you look at the doctrine of Islam, you find that the teachings that came to be Islam are not teachings of compassion for the poor. It might have started that way, perhaps in Muhammad's mind, but it certainly didn't end that way. People sometimes ask, how did Islam spread so quickly? I mean, after all, within a hundred years of Muhammad's death, Muslims were fighting for the control of France, or, or what was to become France. Having swept through all of northern Africa, even across the straits of Gibraltar, throughout Spain, all the way as far north as northern France. And eastward, as far as Persia. How could this have happened in one century? Well, a priest from Lebanon explained to me something that I didn't understand, actually. He didn't explain it explicitly, but the connection came because I had encountered people from around the world when I was studying in Rome, and on occasion I'd encounter a missionary or a parish priest from another part of the world who had come to Rome because of attacks that were being made against his people by Muslim militants. And the Muslims were allied with the Marxists. In fact, the Muslims were the Marxists, and they couldn't figure out why on earth would Muslims be allied with Marxists. But the connection seems to be that Mohammed began by being concerned about the poor. After all, he had poor relatives, and he was concerned about taking from the rich and giving to the poor which seems to fall very neatly in with the concept of socialism and communism. And it also helps to explain why it spreads so rapidly. If you propose to a poor person, and by the way, in that part of the world, they have poverty such as we've never seen, compared to that poverty, our poor people are rich indeed. But when they talk about poverty over there, they're talking about scrounging in the dirt looking for something to eat to survive. And this is the kind of poverty that Muhammad witnessed. And so, as the priest explained to me, if you go with a message to these kind of poor people who are just scraping out an existence, and there are thousands of them, and your message is, look, what those rich people have really should be yours. Allah says so. Allah says so. And you have a right to take it we should tax them and take from them and give to you. And then on top of that, you tell them, and if you die fighting for this, you will go straight to Muslim heaven, where if you die in the process of fighting for Allah, you will die as a martyr, and you will not only have all of these verdant pastures of paradise, and all of the fruit, and all of the meats you could wish, and all of the wine you could possibly drink, but you'll have 700 virgins whom God, Allah, creates just for you to enjoy in this paradise that Allah provides. No wonder with this vision people are willing to fight and even to die thinking they have nothing to lose here, everything to gain, and in the end, finally, this Muslim paradise where they can have everything that is forbidden to them here. Forbidden by Islam, but they can enjoy it there. Maybe you can understand why Islam was so attractive to so many. They simply swarmed and took over in every direction. So we find the poverty side of Muhammad's upbringing and how he meant to deal with it when he began preaching, as a kind of a Marxist idea, hundreds of years before a Karl Marx saw the light of day. Well, you find in Islam also a great emphasis on the unity of Allah. Allah is God, and he has no son. There is no other person who can be called God. There is only Allah. He is not a father. He has no son. There is no Holy Ghost. Absolute denial of the Blessed Trinity. All of the prophets, the great men who've come, and by the way, Islam recognizes quite a few prophets in the past, Abraham, Moses, our Lord Jesus Christ, whom they just referred to as Esau, And finally, Mohammed, who was the greatest of the prophets, the last of the prophets, who brought the final revelation. (coughs) Moses was the prophet for the Jews, and Jesus was the prophet for the Christians, but Mohammed is the prophet for Islam, the Muslims, the chosen people who receive the greatest and final revelation. And so the expression. There is Allah is the one God, the only God, and Muhammad is his prophet. This is the battle cry. Now, their idea of heaven, of course, is completely opposite to our own. The Muslim idea of heaven is a heaven without god in a sense you know you ask you see that the uh, teachings of mohammed take god out of this world there is no savior there's no god who became incarnate and lived on the earth and taught us and died for us that that doesn't exist as far as mohammed is concerned and islamics are concerned that is a blasphemy allah is somewhere but he's not here on earth, never was, never will be. But Allah is not even in heaven. If you read the descriptions of the Islamic heaven, they talk about rivers throwing through these beautiful flowering paradises with succulent fruits and all the food you can eat that appeals to the poor, especially in a land like the Middle East, which is very dry and, you know, oases are very, very popular, but but uh, they are the exception rather than the rule. A lot of desert area there. Well, he paints a beautiful picture of these paradises of, of flowering plants and magnificent fruit trees and and uh, all of these huris, the, the virgins uh, that a man receives. By the way, it's all about men, notice, too. It's all about men. The huris are, are virgins who are created to to service or take care of these, these men who've who've gone to heaven, they are not women who are living here on earth. No. What happens to them? Well, I asked this priest, he said, well, they simply vanish. The women here on earth simply vanish. (laughs) Well, I think you could actually talk to different Muslims and get different answers to that question. But, of course, the answer for a Muslim must ultimately come from the Quran. But in any case, where is Allah? Not just here. Where is he in heaven? The Muslims don't have him to enjoy in heaven. See, it's totally different from our our Catholic understanding of heaven. That we are created for God, in His own image and likeness, and our happiness can only be found in Him. As Saint Augustine says, "Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord," and our hearts can only rest until they rest. In, can never rest, never rest until they rest in Thee. No, it's a very sensuous thing. It's a very worldly thing, from beginning to end. For Islam. Now. Some of you might have. Might have read. Excerpts from the letters. That were left behind. By the hijackers on september 11th this is an article from the cincinnati inquirer for september 29th last and it's headlined excerpts from from letter here are excerpts from a translation of the document left behind by hijackers on three of the four planes september 11th the document was released just the friday after that friday before this and these are the instructions, by the way, that the hijackers were supposed to follow in the hours leading up to their actual taking over the planes and killing themselves. Um, and time and time again, they're told, read a verse from the Quran. Read a verse from the Quran. Read a verse from the Quran that calls for endurance. Read a verse from the Quran which says, obey God. And again, read from the Quran. And finally, at the end of the letter, it says, Try not to have others watch you while you're uttering your prayers. Don't be confused and don't be nervous. Look cheerful and satisfied because you're doing a job which is loved by Allah. And you will end your day in heavens where you will join the virgins. And it ends with the words, there is no God but God. Mohammed is his messenger. These are to be their last words before they slam into the building. You can just hear them shrieking those words just as the cockpits of those airplanes ran into those buildings where they will in the heavens join the virgins do you think they really believe that absolutely they believed it absolutely every word of it this is the moslem heaven it's kind of an orgy it's like an orgy and it's an orgy of all things forbidden for them on earth wine, they weren't allowed to drink alcoholic beverages if good Muslims, if they're good Muslims. Women, well they're supposed to they can have uh, multiple wives, but of course adultery is forbidden, but they can have multiple Mm -hmm. wives. (coughs) But this is what they're looking forward in heaven, to having everything they couldn't have here on earth. What is the moral code of Islam. What does it tell the Muslims to do? Well, uh, just to throw this out, I mentioned a, a word by Father Vincent, Vincent Michelli. Father Michelli wrote a book called The Antichrist, and in this book, on page 126, he says, Mohammed has to be counted as a precursor of the Antichrist, for he denies the Father and the Son, and empties out Jesus by denying his divinity. And we would expect that a moral code arising from this, what Father Michelli calls a precursor of the Antichrist, would be a very interesting uh, moral code indeed. And this is where I think I have to ask Father Greenwell to uh, put on the overhead projector some passages from the Quran. You're looking here at one of the passages from the Quran. Uh, This is from just the second chapter, or as it's called a surah. Uh, There are 114 chapters in the Quran. This is just the second. And it says, And fight in the way of Allah with those who fight with you, and do not exceed the limits. Surely Allah does not love those who exceed the limits. But notice... And kill them wherever you find them, and drive them out from whence they drove you out. And persecution is severer than slaughter. And do not fight with them at the sacred mosque until they fight with you in it. But if they do fight you, then slay them. Such is the recompense of the unbelievers. The unbelievers, the Kafar. You and I are Kafar. We are the unbelievers. But if they desist, then surely Allah is forgiving and merciful. In other words, if they stop resisting you, you'll see what I mean by this. And fight with them until there is no persecution. And religion should be only for Allah. You see, this is when there's no persecution, when religion is entirely for Allah. It's like the communist peace. Communist peace is when there's no resistance to communism. Well, peace for the Quran is when there's no resistance to Islam or no resistance to Allah. And fight with them until there is no persecution and religion should be only for Allah. But if they desist, then there should be no hostility except against the oppressors. But you have to remember, for them the oppressors are those who resist Allah. You'll see what I mean in a moment. Now there are those who say that the Quran starts peacefully enough, but it becomes more and more violent as, as it goes on. That's not true, this is just the second chapter. And uh, could you give us the next transparency, please, Father (laughs) Green? Now, you have to read from right to left, like Hebrew. Uh, uh, The Arabic, which you see there uh, uh, on one side of the page, actually reads like Hebrew from right to left. And so uh, the first page here, the earlier page, is actually on your right-hand side. Then you have to go to the page on the left-hand side. Um, Notice what we're told here. Uh, Number four here, he says, Surely they who disbelieve in the communications of Allah, they shall have a severe chastisement, and Allah is mighty, the Lord of retribution. This is something you notice about Allah. They keep saying he's beneficent and merciful, but it always comes down to vengeance. It always comes down to paying people back and retribution. He's always angry. Number seven, he it is who has revealed the book to you. Some of its verses are decisive. They are the basis of the book, and others are allegorical. Then, as for those in whose hearts there is perversity, they follow the part of it which is allegorical, seeking to mislead, and seeking to give it their own interpretation. But none knows its interpretation except Allah. And those who are firmly rooted in knowledge say, we believe in it, it is from all from our Lord, and none do mind except those having understanding. Now, this helps explain why the Quran can be so confusing. If you study what he's saying there for a minute, you see what he's saying is some of its verses are decisive, but others are allegorical, meaning in a kind of story form or imagery. And some of those who interpret it, interpret it badly and are misdirected. But only Allah knows how to understand the Quran and those to whom he gives understanding. Well, where is the the sure guide to the faith of these Islamics then if they're supposed to attack unbelievers, but there's constant disagreement about who the true believers are because the the, the Quran is allegorical to the extent that many people misinterpret it. And he says it right in the Quran. This is one of the problems, as the Islamics have had from the very beginning, when they started fighting among themselves in the first generation after Allah. Because they couldn't figure out what the Quran meant and where it told them to go. And you have the Shiites, and you have the Sunnis, and a number of other different sects of Muslims, who hate each other almost as much as they hate the unbelievers. And if it weren't for the fact that they were fighting us, they'd be fighting each other, as they have been for centuries. Uh, Next page, please. Oh, wait a minute, I'm sorry. No, let's go to the top of the uh, page on the far left here. Our Lord, surely thou art the gatherer of men on a day about which there is no doubt. Surely Allah will not fail his promise. As for those who disbelieve, surely neither their wealth nor their children shall avail them in the least against Allah, and these it is who are the fuel of the fire. Number 12 there says, say to those who disbelieve, you shall be vanquished and driven together to hell, and evil is the resting place. The next page, please. Notice number 12 on the left-hand side. When your Lord revealed to the angels, I am with you. Therefore, Make firm those who believe. I will cast terror into the hearts of those who disbelieve. Therefore, strike off their heads and strike off every fingertip of them. This is because they acted adversely to Allah and his apostle. This is what I mean. Whoever opposes Allah and Muhammad and Islam is a target. And whoever acts adversely to Allah and his apostle, then surely Allah is severe in requiting evil. This, tasted and know, that for the unbelievers is the chastisement of fire. O you who believe, when you meet those who disbelieve, marching for war, then turn not your backs to them. In other words, don't flee from them. And whoever shall turn his back to them on that day, unless he turn aside for the sake of fighting, or withdraws to a company, then he indeed becomes deserving of Allah's wrath, and his abode is hell, and an evil destination shall it be. So, he says, you did not slay them, that's the unbelievers, but it was Allah who slew them. And you did not smite when you smote the enemy, that's us, but it was Allah who smote, and that he might confer upon the believers a good gift from himself. Surely Allah is hearing and knowing. And the next page then, finally. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to pass from this because here he talks about uh, the belief of the Jews and the belief of the Christians. He singles them out as enemies. And uh, then the next page, please. And here he says in uh, chapter 9, 123, O you who believe, fight those of the unbelievers who are near to you and let them find in you hardness, and know that Allah is with those who guard against evil." Now, my dear people, these are just a few passages from the the Quran, certainly not the whole whole book, but they show you that someone who read the Quran and took it seriously could easily come to the conclusion it is his duty to do exactly what Osama bin Laden said he should do, and that is to attack both uh, uh, military and civilian targets and to spare no one. It is his duty from Allah to kill all he can. And if we go on to uh, the next page, please. (laughs) Another aspect, by the way, of Muslim peace, Muslim peace is for other Muslims or for believers. So when Muslims talk about peace, they're referring to their attitude toward their fellow Muslims. But there is no such thing as Muslim peace in the true sense of the word, in the sense that you think of it and I think of it, for those who don't believe, for the unbelievers, because we resist Allah. Oh, that's, that's okay. Thank you. No problem. There's one other passage, too, which I'd like to read to you, because it shows something else about the teaching of Islam, and that is back, uh, two pages, by the Yes, please. Probably the page just before what you are there. Uh, no, one more back. There we are. Look at the number 29 there. At the bottom of page 172. Fight those who do not believe in Allah, nor in the latter day, Nor do they prohibit what Allah and His Apostle have prohibited, nor follow the religion of truth out of those who have been given the book. Now notice, fight them until. Until when? Until they pay the tax in acknowledgment of superiority and until they are in a state of subjection. That's how long. The Muslims are to fight against those who do not believe in Allah until they are forced to pay the tax to acknowledge the superiority of, of Islam and until they are brought into a state of subjection. Thank you, Father Greenwell. Could you go uh, then two pages forward? Yes, thank you. And this brings us to a law which is called the law of Kisa, it's the law of retaliation. This is another important part of Islam, and that is the command from Allah to retaliate. This was an Old Testament law. It has found its way into Islam, and it is actually the basis of their law of how you are to respond. Number 44, he says, we surely we revealed the Torah, that's the Torah of the Old Testament. Surely we, that's supposed to be Allah speaking, we revealed the Torah in which was guidance and light. With it, the prophets who submitted themselves to Allah judged matters for those who were Jews and the masters of divine knowledge and the doctors. Because they were required to guard part of the book of Allah, and they were witnesses thereof, therefore fear not the people and fear me and do not take a small price for my communication. And whoever did not judge by what Allah revealed, those are they, who are the unbelievers. So the unbelievers are the ones who do not believe what is being revealed here. And this is what is being revealed, those who reject the law of retaliation. And we prescribe to them in it that life is for life, and eye for eye, and nose for nose, and ear for ear, and tooth for tooth, and that there is reprisal, reprisal in wounds, in other words, strike back. He who forgoes it, it shall be an expiation for him. And whoever did not judge by what Allah revealed, those are they that are the unjust. And the next page, the same thing. He talks about retaliation as a great virtue, something that Allah will prosper. Number 60 there says, that shall be so. And he who retaliates with the like of that with which he has been afflicted, and he has been oppressed, Allah will most certainly aid him. Most surely Allah is pardoning forgiving. So, you see, there is in Islam, very much, a law of retaliation, as it was with the Jews, a law which our Lord abrogated explicitly in the Sermon on the Mount. But if they feel as though they've been attacked, if they feel that we are an enemy, they have an obligation to attack us. And it is something that is an act of love for Allah, to attack and to injure your enemy. And Allah will prosper you. Remember, as he said, it is not you who struck, it is Allah who killed them. Now, my dear people, as far as salvation goes in Islam, there is no savior, but they have what they call the five pillars of Islam. And I'm not sure about the pronunciation of this, by the way, I'm taking this from a book that was sent to our school in Cincinnati and evidently has been sent through the public school system also throughout, possibly throughout the country. It is entitled Teaching About Islam and Muslims in the Public School Classroom, a handbook for educators, third edition. So. Yes, our teachers are supposed to be teaching about this, according to them, and uh, teaching their children in public schools about Islam. And this is like it is an Islamic catechism, that's all it is. And on page 20, we find a section about the five pillars of Islam. Shahada, the first of the pillars, declaring belief in the one God and his prophets, culminating with the final prophet, Muhammad and intending to abide by the principles of Islam. That's the first pillar. The second, salat, worshiping God the creator five times throughout the day as a way of maintaining God consciousness and piety. Zakat, the third pillar, paying a special purification tax, if eligible, out of one's wealth to help the poor and the needy. The fourth pillar, saum, Fasting daily during the Islamic month of Ramadan as a spiritual exercise and a word that I don't know how to pronounce, H-A-J-J. The fifth pillar, making a pilgrimage to Mecca, what they call Makkah, once in one's lifetime to commemorate the trials of Prophet Abraham and his family in their efforts to re-establish monotheism. These are the five pillars. Salvation comes from this. Salvation comes from doing these five things. Again, there's no savior. One saves himself by following the practices of Islam. Now look, my dear people, there are those who saw this coming. They recognized the threat that Islam presented to our own Catholic Christian heritage and our own way of life here. Some foresaw the resurgence and threat of Islam. For example, Monsignor Robert U. Benson couched his book, The Lord of the World, in a scenario of world war being threatened between the East and the West. And this book was published in 1907. In fact, he portrayed in the book, in this novel, that the Antichrist would arise to make peace between the East and the West, by bringing their religions together into kind of a new world religion. 1907, ten years before the Bolsheviks took over Russia, was the same year in which Pope Pius X issued the encyclical Paschendi on the doctrines of modernism. And also G.K. Chesterton <coughs> foresaw the danger presented by Islam. This magnificent poem, probably the most famous single poem he wrote, On Lepanto. Uh, This was written, by the way, in the year 1912. G.K. Chesterton said, well, I'll read the beginning of the poetry, but this tells you, uh, this this was kind of an introduction to his poetic rendition uh, commemorating the battle and the victory at Lepanto in 1570. White founts falling in the courts of the sun, and the sultan of Byzantium, that's the sultan of Byzantium, is smiling as they run. There is laughter like the fountains in that face of all men feared. It stirs the forest darkness, the darkness of his beard. It curls the blood-red crescent, the crescent of his lips, for the inmost sea of all the earth is shaken by his ships. They have dared the white republics up the capes of Italy. They have dashed the Adriatic round the lion of the sea. That's Venice, the Christian, the Catholic Republic of Venice. (coughs) And the Pope has cast his arms abroad for agony and loss, and called the kings of Christendom for swords about the cross. The cold Queen of England is looking in the glass. That's Elizabeth. The shadow of the Valois is yawning at the mass. That's the king of France. From evening aisle's fantasticals rings faint the Spanish gun, and the Lord upon the golden horn is laughing in the sun. You see how he portrays, <coughs> portrays the sultan, the Islamic sultan of Byzantium. At this time, he was cruel, blood-red crescent lips. Everyone feared him. Why did G.K. Chesterton write this poem? Because he foresaw something. He saw something coming, that the world was going to be confronted with the same scourge. And he closes by talking about Cervantes, Miguel Cervantes, the author of the famous Spanish literary work, Don Quixote fought with the Christian fleet against the, uh, the Mohammedans on this battle And this poem ends by talking about how Cervantes saw the end of knighthood and yet future battle. And so that battle we are now joining. The great historian Hilary Belloc had some interesting things to say in his book The Great Heresies. He wrote about Islam and he asks why would Islam start so poorly and so in such a disorganized fashion that the Islamics spent so much time fighting each other? He said, the story of all the first lifetime, and a little more than that, after the original rush, the story of the Mohammedan government, such as it was in the beginning, is a story of successive intrigue and murder. But he says the second dynasty flourished. How did it flourish? It became rich, it became powerful, it spread everywhere, it seemed. He says the answer lies, this is Hilaire Balaknow saying this, the answer lies in the very nature of the Mohammedan conquest. It did not, as has been so frequently repeated, destroy at once what it came across. It did not exterminate all those who would not accept Islam. It was just the other way around, he says. It was remarkable among all the powers which have ruled these lands throughout history for what has wrongly been called its tolerance. The Mohammedan temper was not tolerant, he says. It was on the contrary fanatical and bloodthirsty. It felt no respect (laughs) for nor even curiosity about those from whom it differed. It was absurdly vain of itself regarding with contempt the high Christian culture all about it, it is still so regarded even today. But the conquerors and those whom they converted and attached to themselves from the native populations were still too few to govern by force. And what is more important, they had no idea of organization. They were always slipshod and haphazard. Therefore, a very large majority of the conquered remained, that is, the conquered Christians, remained in their old habits of life and of religion. But slowly, the influence of Islam spread through these. But during the first centuries, the great majority in Syria, and even in Mesopotamia and Egypt, were Christians. Keeping the Christian mass, the Christian gospels, and all the Christian tradition. It was they who preserved the Greco-Roman civilization from which they descended, and it was that civilization surviving under the surface of Mohammedan government which gave their learning and material power to the wide territories which we must call, even so early, the Mohammedan world, though the bulk of it was not yet Mohammedan in creed. But there was another and it is the most important cause, that is, for the spread of Mohammedanism, the fiscal cause, the overwhelming wealth of the early Mohammedan Caliphate. The merchant and the tiller of the land, the owner of property and the negotiator were everywhere relieved by the Mohammedan conquest. For a, a massive usury was swept away. You see, been getting, the pagans had been engaging in usury and reducing people to poverty. That was all swept away with the conquest of the Mohammedans. And also swept away was an int- uh, was an int- intricate system of taxation without corresponding results from governments. What the Arabian conquerors and their successors in Mesopotamia did was to replace all of that by a simple straight system of tribute. The conquerors and the conquered the conquerors paying tribute and the the conquered paying tribute and the conquerors taking it whatever was not mohammedan in the immense Mohammedan Empire that is much the most of its population was not Mohammedan was subject to a special tribute they had to pay and it was this tribute which furnished directly without loss from the intricacies of bureaucracy, the wealth of the central power, the revenue of the caliph. That revenue remained enormous during all the first generations. The result was that which always follows upon a high concentration of wealth in one governing center. The whole of the society governed from that center reflects the opulence of its directors. And this actually harkens back to something that was said in the Quran, right there, in chapter 9. Fight against them until they are reduced to paying the tax, it said. Everything that was not Mohammedan was taxed. They paid tribute to be allowed to, to survive uh, to a great, as it were, a parasite, caliphate, which they kept in power by paying to, uh, pr- to simply preserve. That's the tax that they would have to pay, and only then would they have peace under Islam. My dear people, in our own day, there was a man who foresaw this also. Pat Buchanan has been talking about this for quite some time now. He talked about immigration in general. He wasn't perhaps warning about immigration of Islamics necessarily, but he was talking about the dangers of immigration, has been talking about that for years. And, as a matter of fact, uh, many of those who ridiculed him so roundly from the beginning are now saying what he said, but they're not giving him credit for it. In his book, A Republic, Not an Empire, Pat Buchanan wrote, The most immediate and serious problem facing the United States in this hemisphere lies in mass immigration. Since 1965, America has added 30 million people. Each year, as many immigrants enter, not all legally, as there are people in New Hampshire and Vermont. One-tenth of the population of Mexico, the Caribbean islands, Caribbean islands. Some exhibit hostility to learning English. Others manifest open contempt for our country. At the United States-Mexico soccer game at Los Angeles Coliseum in 1998, The national anthem was booed by 90,000. The U.S. flag was torn down. The U.S. team was showered with insults and debris as it left the field. Immigrants now make up a growing share of the inmate population in federal and state prisons. A third of the early arrestees in the Los Angeles riot were illegal aliens. He says, Americans have always known instinctively that the great danger came from within, Abraham Lincoln spoke this truth in an 1838 address to the Young Men's Lyceum of Springfield, Illinois. This is what he said. At what point shall we expect the approach of danger? Shall we expect some transatlantic military giant to step the ocean and crush us at a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined, with a bonaparte for a commander, could not by force take a drink from the Ohio or make a track on the Blue Ridge in a trial of a thousand years. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and its finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. And so Buchanan was already warning that there is danger in free immigration, and he certainly could have foreseen the threat to our own Christian culture coming by the arrival of so many who do not share that culture, but who actually are sworn to crush it, destroy it. He says it should become U.S. policy in the year 2000 to declare that the era of mass immigration has ended, that henceforth 250,000 new immigrants will be permitted in each year, and that illegal illegal immigration will be halted and illegal aliens returned home. As Ronald Reagan said, a country that cannot control its borders isn't really a country anymore. Now, the reason why I bring this in here is because we've seen a massive switch, a paradigm shift, as this evening's speaker will will talk about, a paradigm shift in so many of the words of our politicians who are saying exactly the same things that Buchanan said before, and they ridiculed him. But now they realize that, yes, there are dangers out there. And yes, our own Christian culture is worth preserving and fighting for. Now, my dear people, we look at the present situation. All of this was talking about basically the present situation of what we're dealing with. And we've seen that the terrorists did indeed bring America to her knees. not in the way they anticipated, because our people began to pray. There are the cynics who say that Americans pray like as someone with a headache reaches for aspirin. Americans turn to God as someone with a cold reaches for a Sudafed. But, you know, I think there's more to that. I would like that to be the, the almost the instinctive reaction of the American people to turn to God when they're frightened, to turn to God when they're when they're outraged to turn to God, uh, when they are horrified and, and confused about what is happening, don't know where to turn. I'd like them to turn there. And so I wouldn't criticize these dear people. I, I would just hope that we could follow through. It's a promising beginning. It's unfortunate. so tragic that uh, they brought Americans to their knees in this way, but Americans were praying and we just hope to purify the prayers of America. And when we say God bless America, we mean that not only give us freedom from our enemies, but God deliver us from ourselves, as Abraham Lincoln said. We are we are the ones who will have to kill ourselves if America is to die. And so we ask God's mercy on America in the very act of asking his blessing for America. When we look around and we see the reaction of our American people today to what has taken place We find that people are very much afraid, even today. I, as part of my uh, priestly efforts, uh, go through many airports and uh, see the security that is there. When I was in Europe, I became very accustomed to seeing men standing in battle fatigues, uh, with the stern and forbidding looks, uh, holding Uzis and other forms of armaments on street corners and, uh, and uh, just out in public. It, it's a way of life over there, but it was not a way of life here. When I first got out of the airplane in Fort Lauderdale where I'd gone to offer mass uh, last Sunday, and I saw one of our own American lads standing there in uh, camis and uh, holding a big black gun. It struck me, because it was America. It was America. It actually was painful to see that. It was startling to see that, shocking even, I would say. Um, But this is, unfortunately, what appears to be the future, at least the near future. No wonder people are frightened. Frightened people can be controlled. Frightened people can be controlled. The churches were filled, but there's another aspect to this also. People are willing this moment, it seems, to surrender the rights, the very rights which make them their birthrights as Americans. The rights that our own constitutions grant us, the rights which make this America, because they're afraid. They're contemplating surrendering. And that's one way to destroy our country even more thoroughly than any terrorist or foreign army could ever do. I was told just uh, last night by one of our parishioners in Cincinnati that a, a good friend of hers, who's a neurologist in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, had told her recently that he's seen a massive upsurge in the number of people being referred to him for panic and anxiety attacks. And they're coming looking for drugs because their nervous system simply can't hold what is happening around them, all the terror and the fear. And the neurologist told this lady that he noticed something about virtually every one of these people who are being referred to him for anxiety and panic, and that is, they have no religion. They put themselves down as having no religion. Either they're not practicing some religion or they're simply adherence to no religion. In other words, they have no faith. Those who had any faith turned to their churches But there is a massive group out there who have no faith to sustain them, and they are terrified, and they are turning to drugs. The prescriptions for drugs to deal with nervous disorders have gone skyrocket since September 11th here in our own country. And something else to keep in mind. Is this an opportunity for us? Yes, it is. If only we were willing to take it and not so lazy, we could perhaps show people that the answer is not in taking prescription medicines, but the answer is to be found only in faith and hope and love for God, the true God, the God who is our savior. So what does this future bring us to? Well, I'm going to close with this question of the future. I can't make predictions, if I could I would be rich, (coughs) but I can't. But we do have divine revelation to guide us, and we do have many visitations lately from our Blessed Mother at Lourdes and La Salette and Fatima to guide us as well. What does the future hold? Well. I'm afraid that the future will hold this, that we are going to lose many of our liberties, and a country which we've known as America is going to become almost unrecognizable in terms of the restrictions that are being placed upon us. Uh, One could see what was coming long before September 11th because the media years ago was comparing what we Americans were being asked to put, go through with what other people had gone through for many years in other countries, as so though that mattered. When the price of gasoline soared here in America, we were basically told by the media, oh, pipe down, stop complaining. People in Italy, people in England, people in Germany have been paying much, much more for this than this for their petrol all these years. So in America, we've just gotten off very, very easily, haven't we? So consider yourselves lucky in the past and consider yourselves that, well, this is just right and normal now that you pay as much as everybody else pays. What does that have to do with anything? This is America. Let the Germans pay what they pay and the Italians pay what they pay and the English pay what they pay. But this is America. Since when do we hold ourselves up against them and their way of living as a kind of standard for our American way of life? But this is what the media is telling us and a lot of people here in this country said, well, you know, it's true, it's true, the rest of the world doesn't necessarily live this way, so why should we be any different? And the same thing with regard to gun ownership. Well, you know, in these other countries, they don't have so many, uh, so much liberties to carry guns, so the message is, why should we Americans have these liberties? And the answer is, because, because we're Americans, <laughs> because that's what America's for. That's the point, isn't it? Uh, during the last presidential election and the one before that, the media was telling us who the Europeans would have preferred for president. And I'm sure there were many Americans who said, oh, gee, we really should elect the guy that they, that they can work well with. But what does that have to do with anything? We're going to elect a president whom the French want, or the British want, or the Germans want, or the Italians want? We elect the president to be a president of America for Americans, and we vote for him. It's our vote. This is the whole idea, but this is the message that has been sewn in for many years now. And of course, it's being used now. We're told, well, in other countries, citizens carry internal passports or identity cards, and they have to surrender them. They go out to to get a quart of milk or a a pound of cheese, and they they have to be willing to surrender their identity card to a uh, to a gendarme, or a carbonero, or whoever asks to see their papers. Well, that's fine for them. And it was also fine for socialist governments, and communist governments, and every dictator who ever lived. But this is America, and we don't want that kind of thing. We don't want to have to live this way, They do in other countries, because this is our country. You know what the ultimate upshot of all this is? And I know much of this has not been spiritual, and I'm sorry for that. But I hope that you'll see that all of this is actually converging to a spiritual point. Because everything I've said here has to do with our faith. And other countries have gone the way they have, I believe, because the faith has been waning in those nations for perhaps generations. But the only thing we have to keep us strong, and it is the only thing we need, is our faith. Our faith in God, our hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, and our love for the Blessed Trinity, whom Mohammed rejected. Mohammed rejected. You see, the ultimate upshot of all of this, and this, I think, is what the future is going to bring, not just I think, I know, is the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Our Lady promised this at Fatima, and we are going to see this, and things are moving rather rapidly now, so who knows, some of us who are here today, or our children, might live to see this triumph of Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. We are also going to find, I hope, that even our own children begin to understand the importance of a savior. Because when we deal with Islam, or when we deal with Judaism, we are dealing with religions that do not have a savior. For Islam, there is no such thing as a savior. For Judaism, there is but they still anticipate him, he's not arrived yet. But as Christians, as Catholics, we have a living Savior. And that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. It's all that matters, really. We discover the enormous importance of the fact that we are able to say these words Our Lord Jesus Christ, my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because it is his coming that has transformed everything. That's why there is this difference. If it weren't for him, it would still just be the law of retaliation. It would still be the the warlords. It would still be just this hopelessness of a heaven without God, let alone an earth with no God. But our Lord has made all the difference and it should move us to reaffirm our allegiance and our love for him, our desire to know him better. We see the Islamics doing what they do and we should be embarrassed that while they are willing to do what they do, I mean, even get, I saw it in Cleveland Airport, a Muslim roll out his rug, get down on his knees with people around and start bowing to Mecca as he's saying his prayers in Arabic. And I think to myself, and we are ashamed to show a rosary in public or make the sign of the cross at a restaurant. And they do this for what? for Allah, and we should be doing it for whom? For the true God, who has loved us enough to teach us with a human tongue and bless us with his own human hands, and then have them both crucified by thirst and by nails. You know? Hopefully, all of this will make us uh, increase our faith, study it more, and stop being so lazy, make us more dedicated Catholics. That's the only acceptable response we have. That's the only place there is any security. Being in the state of grace is the only safe place to be. No government can protect you from what they have in mind for you. Not perfectly. And you, as a member of the church militant, must be in the state of grace. If you are not, you are like a soldier who is missing in action, you're a prisoner of war, or you're simply dead, and you're useless to your church and even your country. The Catholic's primary responsibility to himself, to his family, to his church, and to his God is to be in the state of grace. We are also going to, in the future, discover the power of the rosary. Mostly, rather, Our Lady and her power working through the rosary. That's what we're going to find out most. We're going to find there, put to the test, that Our Lady promises that she will protect those who pray her rosary. Well, we're going to find out, as I say. That's what the future holds, too. And those who are willing to pray the rosary and humble themselves and remember the mysteries and make their hearts like her heart, because they fill hearts with their hearts with the very things that her hearts are filled with. What are those things? Mary kept all these things in her heart. That is, the words of Jesus and the things that he did. Those are the things that filled her heart. The gospel even says so. And if we, through the rosary, fill our hearts with exactly those things, then we will see the power of Our Lady through the rosary. And finally, I say this to people we are going to learn to trust in God more and more. Because those who persevere will see all things increasingly from the vantage point of God's own eternal knowledge and wisdom. What do I mean by that? I mean by this, you and I pray. We have urgent things that are so important to us. We pray and we pray and we don't see anything good happening. Sometimes things go from, good, from bad to worse. And we have this sense of urgency in our prayers. And in the days ahead, we're going to feel that very acutely, the sense of urgency because of what's going to be happening in the world. And we're going to be praying to God. We're going to be praying for the intercession of the Blessed Mother and the saints, such as St. Teresa. But things are not going to be going from good to better, from better to best, or even from bad to better, perhaps for a long time. And we will have this sense of urgency. We have to understand, though, that in heaven there is no sense of urgency. When you are praying for the conversion of someone, for the safety of a loved one, whatever it might be, there is no sense of urgency in heaven. Why? Because God knows how everything is going to turn out. He knows how it's all going to end. And now even the saints whose intercession you beg for, they know how things are going to end. They don't feel a sense of urgency like this has to be done now. We're always lost. And so we're going to experience also that sense of eternity of trusting in God. He knows the future. He knows the final resolution of all earthly affairs all the saints in heaven with God know who will cooperate with grace and when and where and how they will do it. We fret, but the saints' knowledge in God gives them the calm reassurance, and they in turn will give us that reassurance. The saints whom we invoke so urgently and ardently, and often with such anxieties, they already see the promised triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. They see it even now. And so, my dear people, let's ask our dear beloved Mother Mary and her saints, notably her dear little child, St. Teresa, to fill us with an overwhelming sense of trust in God that if we persevere in our faith, then someday we will rejoice to see Our Lady's triumph and our Lord himself saying to us, Come to me, blessed of my Father, and take possession of the kingdom which God has prepared for you and for those who love him from the beginning of the world. May God bless you.